1 Samuel chapter 18, as we continue our study of this chapter, which we've entitled Friend, Enemy, and Adversary. Uh, today we're going to be talking about It's Your Choice. It's Your Choice. This week, Sandra and I and uh, Belle uh, went on a little trip. Uh, we have a little pond in our backyard, Nate's been skating on it, and so uh, we went up to Flint to play it against sports and bought some ice skates, to which we got home to find out that the ice was cracking and melting, so we chose poorly, didn't we? But uh, we went out there, had a little lunch together, and as we were having lunch on the TV screen is the Winter Olympics are playing. And I'm not a big fan of the Olympics. I think they're a lot of made-up sports. I'm not a huge fan. If you love them, that's good for you. But I don't really care for it. It just seems to me like most Olympic games are your cheaters trying to beat our cheaters. And everybody's trying to cheat the system with drugs and steroids and everything else. And, and everybody has a funny accent. And if I want that, I can go down south. But, um, <laughs> and they cheat in sports, too. But anyways, um, so we were watching that. And I noticed something, and I kind of made this observation to Sandra. I said, you know, the biggest difference between the winter and the Olympic sports, in the Olympic sports, half of the events, you could die in. I mean, the most dangerous sport that, to you physically, if you do it right, in the summer Olympics, is like that pole vaulting thing, where you try it, you could impale yourself accidentally. But in the winter Olympics, practically half of the sports, they're trying to kill you in it. In the luge, I mean, you're on that little sled. Remember those sleds you had when you were a little kid? These guys are on those little sleds going 100 miles an hour. I always thought, do you really need a person? Couldn't you just strap a person onto that? Just somebody walking by, grab them, throw them on, and boom, down the luge. <laughs> Compulsory luge. But the skiing, they go over 100 miles an hour in those skiing, and they wear the helmets, but the helmets aren't for protection. They're those weird odd shapes for, for streamlining. And then they have that long jump. Good Lord, you should, be in, you should be put away from society if you're doing that. They get up, it's like hundreds of feet up. They go streaming down the hill, and you think, oh, that's just enough right there. No, and then they jump, and they go flying. Hundreds and hundreds of human beings are flying. And you say, well, that can't be dangerous. Well, remember the agony of defeat? Remember ABC and the ag that guy coming down there and twisting? And that was the long jump, and that guy died doing that. And the summer sports, nobody really dies. But in the winter, even some of the winter sports seem like threats. They have in the Winter Olympics the biathlon. Do you know what the biathlon is? The biathlon is where they cross-country ski for a while, which in of itself is very tiring. And I give you a lot of credit for doing that. But they cross-country ski, they stop, and they take their gun off, and they shoot. And then they put their gun back on, and they cross-country ski again. And Sandra's, we're watching this as these guys are cross-country skiing. She goes, well, how do they get around the other guy? And I said, well, that's what the gun is for. <laughs> Look, if we're cross-country and you've got a gun behind, go. Just go. You've got the gun. Go. I don't care. But there is nothing like that in the Summer Olympics. It's kind of like... Uh, if you swam a lap in the pool and you'd have to get out and strangle a guy and then jump back in and swim it. There's nothing equivalent in the Summer Olympics at all. But we were talking about that and she said, you know, and here's the difference between Sandra and I. She's such a nice person, right? And she said, wouldn't it be horrible if they got hurt? And I looked at her and said, no. 
And she looked at me like some of you are with that horrified face. And I said, no, because they chose to do this. Nobody was just walking along them all of a sudden. They're going down a ski ramp of 100 feet and about to jump up. They practiced this. They made a conscious choice. I don't really have too much sympathy for the people who chose to do it. I have sympathy for the people they land on. They made a choice, a decision to participate in these games. They knew the dangers, and they chose to do it anyways. I said all that because it reminded me of what I'm about to say here in a second. And it's this. There is a point to that. Spiritual decisions. You will live with the decisions you make today. You will live tomorrow with the decisions that you're going to make today. Hey, you choose to step out on your wife, you will live with those decisions. You choose to cheat on your taxes this week as you get your taxes correct, you will live with those decisions if they catch you. Even if they don't catch you, you will live with those decisions. You see, salvation, it's an opportunity to accept Christ, be forgiven, go to heaven, have a best friend, have the Holy Spirit, all of these. And you say, eh, Jesus is just too great. I mean, who really needs all that kind of love? I mean, I don't need that much love. You make a decision today. You walk out of here. Even no decision is a decision today. Now, I want to jump into seminary class for just a second, okay? So stay with me. I'm not going to stay too long, all right? We're going to jump into seminary class. There are theological terms I want to hit on today. One is called decision theology. Uh, sometimes it's also called decision regeneration. But decision theology is this is that a person must make a decision for Christ. A person must make a decision for Christ. I would think as we hit that point, most of us would amen that and walk away, and I would amen that and say that's exactly right. But you know what? There's conflict in that type of theology. There's conflict in that, and I, I agree with that statement, by the way. I don't want you walking out here not knowing where I stand. But some would say that's not true, that you don't have to make a decision for Christ, that the person does not have to make an individual choice for it. You see, theologically, there's two sort of bipolar extremes on this concept. One is called monergism. And in that, that, that strain of theology says it's God working alone. God working alone. You will find this in people who call themselves Calvinist. If you ever attend a church that has the word reformed in it, they will probably believe in this type of theology completely. The second part is synergism. And synergism is God working with us. Uh, this is what we call Arminianism, named after James Arminianus. Uh, most of your Assembly of God are, are Arminian. Practically all of your Pentecostal are, are Arminian. Um, uh, where I was raised for the first five years of my life, free will Baptists are Arminians. And the concept with that is that salvation is you turning to God. Now, you've heard that before, maybe, but it's you turning to God. Here's the problem with that. All Arminians believe you can lose your salvation that you can stop being saved and you can stop being a child of God. I would ask you, what verse does it say that I become unjustified? Please show me that. You are never taken out of God's hand. You see, salvation is not a work that you're doing turning to God because if it's a work you're doing turning to God, well, after a certain point, maybe I change my mind and I turn away from God. You see, theology, theologically, they offer you these two extremes and these two standpoints, the Calvinism, the Arminian, and you're all supposed to, you have to pick one. And if you're not on one, you're on the other side. And if you're not on the other side, then you're a crazy heretic, right? And by the way, this type of, this is split denominations. This is split seminaries. This is split Christians. The, even this concept of it, this is split families and stuff. Um, 
I choose neither. I choose to reject them both, honestly. I choose the Bible. You see, the problem with this theology, they're trying to explain to you in a human way what God does. And I have come to this decision that I cannot explain the Trinity completely. I can give you ideas, illustrations, water, can be a solid, can be a gas, can be a liquid. Myself, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother. I can give you illustrations. Those are not accurate descriptions of the Trinity. And I've just decided with things like the Trinity and things like salvation, I cannot fully understand everything. I'm just going to believe what God has revealed to me. You see, I reject Arminianism because I know I can't lose my salvation. And you know what? I also reject the other because I know I can do nothing for salvation. I can do no works. But I also know that I play a role in my salvation experience. You see, Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, I'm a, if I had to classify, I might have a little Calvinistic tendencies and things. But Pastor Gregory, who was my mentor, and he was very anti-Calvinistic and things, and he would always point out and say, you know, isn't it amazing that everybody who's, everybody who's a Calvinist, their children are always the elect? Their kids are always going to heaven. And he would say, you know, Steve, if we lead someone to Christ and they make a decision to accept Jesus and they're not part of the elect, God will forgive us. And I always love that attitude and that at, because it's like, you know what, I don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. I don't know what God's doing in your heart. Can I be honest with you? There's only one person I know in this room who was 100% saved, and that's me. Now, if my mom came in the room, too, I'd say there's two. But, but Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. You see, an ardent, an ardent extremist Calvinist would say, Man is wretched and depraved. And I would amen that. I would say, spiritually, there's nothing I can do. My righteousness is filthy rags. I can never justify myself before God. But they would take it another step and say, salvation? Well, salvation just sort of just happens. Salvation, it has no part of the human being in there. And they would say, instead of asking people to make a decision to accept what Jesus did on the cross, to accept the work on the cross, they would say, you need to ask people to repent. People should be told to repent. And I think about that, and I think about this, that by definition, their word repentance of what they're saying is a work. It's a work. If you're here today and I ask you why you're going to heaven, if you reply with anything that's a verb, if you reply with anything of an action that you've done, I am sad to tell you this today, you are not going to heaven. The only way you're going to heaven is by something that Jesus and God does. The best you have to offer, the best you can do is filthy rags to God. So by their definition, repentance would be a work. But let me ask you this. When you prayed to receive Christ and you asked Jesus to be your Savior, what were you really doing? Well, you were repenting, weren't you? Repenting is basically saying, you're right and I'm wrong. And when you came to know Christ, you were saying, you're right, God. There's nothing I can do to about my salvation. You're, you're right and I have to change, I have to make a decision here today about what I'm going to do. You see, there are groups that don't like the sinner's prayer, and I've never under quite stood that. I understand that there can be easy believism. There's a group in, within our Baptist uh, circles and sometimes, and they take it too far, and they will push people. If they just say the name Jesus, they're going to heaven. Well, you know, I can go down our children's department, and I can have them recite a prayer for me, can't I? 
And how many, you know, a five-year-old would love to please their parents. And a five-year-old's not like many of you. They love their pastor. No, but a five-year-old would love to please their pastor. And I could get them to recite a prayer. Are they going to heaven? Now, see, something's missing here. But can I just say this, Romans 10? What an amazing chapter Paul did in Romans 10. But in Romans 10, 9, it says this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. That belief, that sounds like a decision, doesn't it? A decision that I have to make. And what do I have to do? Thou shalt be saved. And with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. But in verse 10 says, but with the mouth. What is prayer? Prayer is you talking with God. What is the mouth? The mouth is you talking with God. There is no formulaic sinner's prayer you have to call on to be saved. You don't have to say exactly what I said when I called on God. I said, God, I'm going to hell. I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, save me. I don't want to go to hell, God. Forgive me of my sins. I was a six-year-old boy, and that's basically word for word what I said. And at that moment, I became redeemed. I was a child of the God. I was forgiven at that moment. What did I do? With my heart, I believed, and with my mouth, I prayed unto God. Seems pretty simple. He said, Pastor, but isn't that you doing something? It's really not. You see, the total act of salvation is a God thing. It's all something that God does. Even the faith that we use to believe is a gift from God. Oh, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It, referencing faith, it is a gift from God. I don't have the ability to repent. God gives me that ability. I don't have the ability. I don't have enough faith to believe in God. I don't have any of that. But when I finally make a decision, what was that decision? It wasn't to do works. It wasn't. I finally made a decision to surrender to God. God gave me the ability to repent. God gave me the faith that I would need. I literally use Jesus' faith to believe because humanly speaking, I could do nothing about it. And when I finally stopped fighting God, you see, what did I do was really nothing. What I did was stop doing anything. And I let God take over. And God gave me the ability to make that decision. You see, you are involved in salvation. It's your decision that makes the discerning factor. Will you make the decision and salvation to finally stop fighting God? There are no special words. I know of a, a friend of mine who pastors, and he talked about when he was in seminary, a guy came to ch their chapel, and there's about five, 600 college students and you know, seminary students, and this guy preached and said, if you didn't say the word repent, when you got saved, you're not saved. When you cried out, if you didn't say this exact word, repent, because it's repentance unto salvation. So if you didn't say that, and he said about five, six hundred, about three or four hundred of those college students got saved. Because they were like, well, I have to say repent. No, come on. God knows your heart. And with the man, with the mouth, I confess, I can do nothing, God. There is no magic formula of words. But what it is, with the heart and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. What is that? It's a decision. When you accepted Christ, you made a decision. And God took over all the rest.
say, well, pastor, we're saved. Why are you doing this other than you're trying to get all your money's worth from theology classes, right? Why are you telling us? Because can I suggest to you the same thing is true about your Christian life? All you need to do is surrender. All you need to do is make a decision to stop fighting God. And then God comes in and does all the rest. See, it's not any different. We take that verse of Jesus in Revelation, I stand at the door and knock, and we use it for salvation, and it's okay to use it as an illustration, but do you know who Jesus is talking to there? He's talking to the church. He's talking to a group of believers. And you notice that Jesus doesn't say, open the door or I'm kicking it down and I'm coming in. Listen, your, de your decision to go to heaven is a decision that only you can make. And your decision to finally to surrender, to stop fighting God today, is a decision only you can make. So today, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to see that David has to make a choice. He has to make a decision. He's either going to believe that God can take care of him or God can't. He's either going to believe that God's way is right or what David wants to do is right. Last week we talked about the, the enemy trying to infect your spirit. And we said the enemy's trying to infect your spirit. And it's amazing. I hear young people say, well, I'm just spiritual. That's the worst thing I've ever heard anybody say because what they really mean is I'm open to all form of spirituality that's out there. And 99.9% .9 of all spirituality is bad. It's demons. It's demonic powers. You would never surf the internet the way you open yourself up spiritually. And we said the enemy wants to infect you by attacking you with your weakness. You have a weakness. You better figure out what it is. The enemy wants to attack you with your pride. God, why can't, won't God use me? I'm so awesome. And we said the enemy will use old enemies. And what happened at first, last week, David survived these attacks. Well, then Satan's done with him. He'll never attack him again. He comes right back at him again. And watch how Satan will use these same three things again. Uh, keep that up there as I go through this. You'll see these same three apply. Look here. Watch. First, in verse 20, Saul, who is basically acting for Satan, Saul's going to try, and he first tried to snare David with his daughter, Merib. But that didn't work. So watch Satan or Saul, attack him again with his weakness. What is David's weakness? We said this last week. Everybody knows two stories about David. David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. David's weakness was women. So watch him try to use his weakness again. Verse 20. And Micah, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Why? Because Saul wanted something good for his daughter and was glad she finally fell in love? No. Because he sees this as an opportunity to tempt David. And Saul said in verse 21, I will give him her that she may be, look at this word in the authorized version, that she may be a snare to him. Gentlemen, just because something's pretty doesn't mean it's good for you. This lady is a snare, a trap laying in the weight. Just because something's pretty doesn't mean it's good for you. Did I say that enough? Just because something's pretty doesn't mean it's good for you. She was probably a nice-looking young lady. Saul was supposed to be a nice, handsome-looking young man. In verse 21, And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law and the one of, of the twain. 
Uh, put in your Bibles 1 Samuel 19.11, because that's when their Bible tells us they actually got married. 1 Samuel 19.11. But watch how the next verse plays out. Watch how Saul, or Satan, is going to play on David's pride. And Saul commanded his servant, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, means get inside there in his inner circle and manipulate him. Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. That's a lie. And now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. Do you notice I thought was interesting? They didn't say, marry her. They didn't say, marry this girl who loves you. Didn't say, marry Michael, which is odd. I don't want to marry a girl with a guy's name. But it doesn't say, marry Michael. What does it say? Be the king's son-in-law. Now watch David's pride. Watch David's pride come out here in verse 23. And Saul's servants spake these words in the ear of David. And David said this, No, 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 I'm not choosing a woman just by what it can get me. I'm not choosing a woman just because she's pretty. I'm going to pick a wife that's God's will for my life. What a different story in his life if he decided to make that decision right here. But he doesn't. David said, Seemeth thee to a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? Um, again, does he mention her name? No. What does he focus on? Being the king's son-in-law. That's starting to appeal to David here. What does he say here? Seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. What David is saying is, I don't have money and I don't have position. A little trick. Let people talk and listen to them long enough and you'll find out what their real interests are usually. They will always sort of come back to certain topics. Listen, let people talk, and if they're always telling you about things they did, their events, stuff that's happened to them, their number one fan is themselves. They love themselves. Uh, if you let someone describe themselves, eventually they're going to get to the bedrock of who they really are. This is David's bedrock. What does David want the most in his life right here? Money and position. What was he? A little shepherd boy who was even his own parent didn't think he was worth being king. What does he want? Position, recognition. Next, Saul or Satan is going to use David's old enemy, the Philistines, to try to kill him. This is a trap, and David's going to fall right in it. Verse 24, And the servants of Saul told him, saying, Of this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not a dowry, meaning he doesn't want any money for his daughter's hand, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Mark that number down, one hundred. To be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall into the hand of the Philistines. Now, the, the Philistines are as old as they had just, he just killed Goliath. The Philistines hate David. Somebody scores the winning run against your team and your team gets knocked out of the playoffs. You don't like that person. Listen, I could say a name here, and a lot of you hockey fans, Claude Lemieux. Yeah, some of you, you're still not over it, right? Because you, you hold on to those grudges and those things. The Philistines hate David. It was just a few weeks ago they killed their champion. So watch what happens. Uh, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought that he might David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And here's the third attack. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David. Why? Well, to be the king's son-in-law. Not to marry Michael because he loved her or because he, it was God's will for him to marry her, but because his pride said, now you can be the king's son-in-law. And the days were not expired. 
And wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew the Philistines. Not a hundred, right? But two hundred men. Uh, Here's his old enemy, the Philistines again. Can I just ask a question? Where does it ever say that God told him to do this? Never does God say, I want you to get up and I want you to kill 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them to the full tale of the king that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. And there is his next weakness, women. David made a decision. The enemy... At first, last week, could not infect his spirit. But the enemy chiseled away at his weakness, played on his pride, used an old enemy, and now the enemy, it's a small one, but the enemy has a foothold into David's life. The seeds of David's destruction that we will see one day, that we will see, can all be traced back to a decision that David made today. So how will you respond How will God respond to David? Well, how do we respond to people who fall? How do we respond to people who fail us in our life? How do we respond to people who let us down? How do we respond to people who make mistakes? Vengeance, right? We come back with vengeance. Vengeance like this. A man is almost about to die. As he laid on his deathbed, the man confided to his wife, I cannot die without telling you the truth. I cheated on you throughout our whole marriage. All those nights I told you I was working late, I was with another woman. His wife looked at him and calmly pat his hand and said, Well, why do you think I gave you the poison? How do we respond when someone lets us down? We respond with vengeance. How do we respond when a person in leadership falls and makes a mistake? We respond with vengeance. That's not how God responds when we make mistakes. Today, as I can close, I want to give you three things about how God deals with our failures. You're here today and you say, I've made mistakes. I see my pride. I have a weakness. I keep falling in. I see everything you're talking about, Pastor. That is me. I've made mistakes. How is God going to deal with a person like me? Three ways. Number one, God is offering amnesty for your sin. God is, I thought I'd use a word in the news lately. God is offering amnesty for your sin. My family, my children, my wife, are a bunch of heretics who hurt my feelings. Last Sunday, so last Sunday night, went home when we got home after the snow and everything, and I was showing my son, and I grabbed Sandra and Belle, we came in, and I showed him the video from the 1984 Detroit Tigers, Bless You Boys. And I showed him that, Bless you boys, this is the year the Tigers. All right, the rest of you are heretics too, but, and I showed them that. Mark, do you know what they said? They said it was stupid. They laughed at it. They thought it was dumb. And I told them all, you're all out of the will. (laughs) That's my team. I listened to every game that year in 84. I heard Ernie Harwell if it wasn't on Channel 4 with Al Kaline and George Kell. I listened to every game. 84 was amazing. Amen? That was... 84, you might not get it this year, you're not, but 84 was an amazing year. And for them to, I showed them something amazing, and I almost cried during the song because I was like, oh, this is awesome. They're showing the wave, they're showing old Tiger Stadium, Mark. It was amazing. And my son said, that's stupid. He's looking for a new place to live right now. (laughs) 
You see, I'm going to hold a grudge. And I was mad. I was literally mad. And I held a grudge. But that's not how God behaves when you, mis- when you hurt his feelings. When you go against him, when you th- say something that he loves, Jesus, isn't important. That's not how he responds. You know what God responds with? God responds with grace. Grace is, not, is getting what I don't deserve. It's a gift. You get Jesus. You couldn't deserve it. But you know what he also responds with, Christian? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. I deserve separation from God for all eternity in hell. But I was given a gift through Jesus. And I was given mercy to not get what I deserve. Can I, can I make a bold or a difficult challenge for you? When people let you down and hurt you, instead of responding with vengeance, how about coming back with a little grace, a little mercy? You see, today, it's your choice, it's your decision. Mercy and grace are available at the cross. But maybe God wants you to give mercy and grace to someone else. Number two, how God deals with our failures. God is expecting you to mature. God is expecting you to mature. After he gives you grace and mercy, after he gives you amnesty, he's expecting for you to mature. Do you know what maturity, this is my definition, acting the same everywhere, meaning you act the same in here as you do outside. As a pastor, I run into this a lot. Um, uh, My wife, for her uh, birthday, uh, we went down to the Fox Theater, and uh, we grew up in the 80s and the 90s and stuff, so we loved Jerry Seinfeld. And so for her birthday, I bought her tickets. We went down to the Fox Theater and saw Jerry Seinfeld perform. It was amazing. He's hilarious. But uh, we went down there, and so we went to the second show and stuff, and we got down there early, and we went up to the Hockey Town Cafe, and we went up to the top level, and there's practically no one in there. So we got two Cokes, and we sat down at this table. And Well, the first act got out, and you can't go in for a while. And there, all these people are coming out, and so the whole room is filling up. Well, we're going to leave in a second. We're sitting there drinking our Cokes at this big table that could seat like eight people. And I look over, and there's three nice-looking ladies. They're older than both of us, but they're standing there, and they're drinking and stuff like that. And I felt bad, and I'm like, okay come over here and sit with us. And so they sit down at the table, right? And they're very, oh, I can't believe you let us sit with you. And that was so nice of you and everything. And they start talking and stuff. And one of them has a mouth like a sailor, right? I could not believe. I'm like, man, I've been in locker rooms and never heard people talk like this. These ladies, I was like shocked. And the two other ones weren't far behind her. And they're talking. And, uh, you know, I ask them, and like, what do you do? And they're both, all three were stewardesses. You know, they go on flights and they both or I live in Canton and Livonia and stuff. And I knew that area, so we talked a little about it. And then came the question that sometimes I dread, but sometimes I love. I ask you what you do, right? So what's the natural response? What do you do? And I don't know why I got this way. I don't know. Sometimes, I'm a, I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or a demon. I don't know. But they asked me, what do I do? And I just replied, I'm a Southern Baptist old school preacher. That's literally what I said. <laughs> And the one who was doing the worst talking, this lady looks at me, her eyes get big, and she goes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and the other lady goes, oh, I'm sorry, Father. And I'm like, well, I am a father, but I'm not yours. But, um... So what I did is I, I made them pay an indulgence. No, I... <laughs> 
been fun, but I, no, I didn't. Um, you know what maturity is? Maturity is acting the same way you act here as you do at the Fox Theater. And not just because the father or your pastor or somebody you respect is there. You, oh, I changed the way I talk. I don't want to talk this way because you're here. Listen, if you shouldn't say it in front of me, apparently my ears are delicate. If you shouldn't say it in front of me, you shouldn't be saying it on Monday morning. Amen? If you shouldn't be saying it here in church, maybe you shouldn't be saying it there. If you shouldn't do it here at church, maybe you shouldn't be doing it at home. If you can't do it in the hallways of our church, maybe you shouldn't be doing it the hallways of where you work. If you can't act that way here, maybe you shouldn't be acting that way behind the wheel of a car. Because maturity is this. I start acting the same way everywhere, no matter what. You see, after God gives you grace and mercy, what he expects? He expects you to start to grow, become a disciple. He expects you to start to change everything about you. But you know what? It's your choice. It's your decision. And lastly, number three, how God deals with our failures. He gives us opportunities. He gives us opportunities. Um, we get so amazed by the smallest things, and we miss what's really amazing in life. I like this little joke. One night, a, one night, a wife found her husband standing over their infant's crib. As she watched him looking down at that very first, their very first baby, she saw in his face a mixture of emotions. Emotions of disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, enhancement, skepticism. She was so touched by this unusual display and the deep emotions that it had aroused in her. He saw, she saw in his eyes the, the, the look of, of hope and the look of possibility. She went up behind him and put her arms around her husband and just said, Penny for your thoughts? And he replied with, It's amazing. I just can't see how anybody can make a crib like that for only $46. (laughs) Sometimes something so amazing is right in front of us and we get distracted by something that's really not amazing. I mean, we get distracted by teams. We get distracted by jobs. You can even get distracted by the fact that people love you. I am, I am very well aware that I married up, and I am always amazed that my wife chose to marry me. And I am always, listen, I tease about my kids a lot, and I make jokes about that. But you know what that is? That's really covering the deep emotion I have that I'm a little afraid to vent. Because once I start talking about them, there's a level of emotion that I cannot stop, and I don't like going down that path. I am amazed that God has given me the opportunity to be your pastor. I am amazed that God has allowed me to live because if you knew me at 16, I didn't deserve it. But of all those opportunities, the opportunity to accept Christ is probably the most amazing. You see, let me just throw this at you as we close about opportunity. He gives us the opportunity to forgive, be forgiven of our sins at the cross. He gives us the opportunity to experience grace. Grace at the cross, but grace when we fail and mercy. And for you, if you're a believer, he gives us the opportunity to finally grow. To humble ourselves and say, I need to know more. I need to be better. I need to make some changes in my life. I need to be a disciple. But if you get used to God, if you get used to God and start taking his opportunities for granted... You know what? You'll, start be, you'll stop being thankful for the love he gave you. And lastly, you'll stop. You'll lose the awe 
of the forgiveness that God gave you. But it's your choice. It's your decision today. I want to close with, and hopefully it'll work, I want to close with a video. I, I just love this video. And so, uh, Greg, you might have to turn it up. Let's start it first and let's see how it goes. Here we go. I think we're good, Greg. Unmute it. Is it muted on the computer? And this is why technology is horrible. Isn't that beautiful? Musicians, come forward, would you? Rick, come forward. I have decided to follow Jesus is the story of the song. And the, song, the, the video tells the story of a man in a tribe in India and how he was... Come up here. Come up. You're, you're pretty, Rick. Go to the left. Go to the left. There we go. In mid-19th century India, a man converted to Christianity by Welsh missionaries was confronted by the chief of his village. The chief commanded him to renounce his newfound faith in Christ or face grave consequences. In response to the chief's threats, however, the man only replied, Infuriated, the village chief dragged the man's family outside and began to threaten them with bodily harm. The man, unflinching, responded to the leader's ultimatum. Hot with rage and desperate to save face among the people, the village chief slaughtered the man's family in front of him. He turned his eyes to the steadfast convert, demanding that he either deny the works of Jesus or face his own death. In the center of the public square, the man was bound, beaten, thrown to the ground, and slowly crushed to death. But not without a final defiance of the village chief. As his bones were breaking and his lungs collapsing, the man's final words rang out in song through the village square. system of this world and cling to the saving hope of the cross. Then and only then can you look to the shackles of your former life and declare that there is no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. Will you stand with me today?